You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, the uh, president of a university received a letter from a well-intentioned mother, and it read as follows. Dear Sir, my son has been accepted for admission to your college, and soon he will be leaving me. I'm writing to ask you to give your personal attention to the selection of his roommate. I want to be sure that his roommate is not the kind of person who uses foul language or who tells off-color jokes or smokes, drinks, or chases after women. I hope you'll understand why I'm appealing to you directly. You see, this is the first time my son will be away from home, except for his three years in the Marine Corps. (laughs) This idea that we ought to somehow keep a safe distance between us and them is one of the most dangerous ideas in the history of humanity. And it misses the heart of God. We are called as followers of Jesus not to hide from the world, but to embrace it. And to embrace a new way of being within the world. Jesus calls us to be bold. And that's what we're talking about in this series. It's a new way of being, this kingdom of God. It was a central message of Jesus wherever he went. He wanted to talk about it. And I love the way Dallas Willard paraphrases Mark 1.15, where Jesus says, All the preliminaries have been taken care of, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. So review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. Now, The problem is that not all of us are living with this remarkable new opportunity, are we? Not all of us, not yet. Last week we talked about friends. There's nothing more valuable than people. And the imperative at the end of that parable was make friends, Jesus said. But what does friendship look like when you're trying to live with someone who's living with an entirely different kingdom? How do you and I embrace a world that doesn't embrace Jesus? And I'm talking about people in our lives, people at work, people who live next door, people at the gym, people we see in the news, people who are as close as people in this church or in our own family. How do we keep from falling into an us-them ghetto mentality when we know what Jesus offers is so wonderful and we want it for everybody, but not everybody receives it? Well, Jesus answers this question with a story. It's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I'd invite you to open up your Bible. Let's turn to it together and have a read. It's Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. You'll find that on page 794 of the Pew Bible. I'd like you to open to that, uh, please. And actually, i have you keep it open this morning as we meditate together on this wonderful story that Jesus told. If you're able, would you please stand? Let's read Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30 aloud. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. 
And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not seed good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So if you can't make heads or tails of that story, relax. Neither could Jesus' followers. That was the way Jesus presented the parable to the crowds, Matthew tells us. But when they get indoors, a couple of clicks later, the disciples who had been nodding all along approvingly, going, good story, great message, everybody needs to hear this, turn to Jesus and say, what in the world did that mean? Can you, can you, can you explain that? And so uh, he does, and uh, just keep your Bible open there, but let me, let me read the, the interpretation of this parable found in verse 36 of the same chapter. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. Wow, that helps. (laughs) But I want you to think of this parable this way. This is really what I would call the parable of us and them. Or the story of how we get along with our uncomfortable differences while the kingdom is still coming. This question is not a new question in Jesus' day. A lot of conversation. How do we get along with those who have not embraced God? The Jews of Jesus' day had been overrun by foreigners economically, militarily, socially, and culturally. Many thought that they had lost their distinctiveness as the people of God. And so to recover it, they debated different strategies, different us-them strategies. And I want to share three general categories with you that I would call flight, fight, and fuss. The first group of people responded to the us-them dilemma. They were the Essenes, and their strategy was flight. They withdrew from those who were different, who were not like them. We see remnants of the Essenes on the shores of the Dead Sea, We can be thankful for the Essenes, by the way, because they preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have been a tremendous benefit uh, to those of us who care about the Scriptures. But their response to the world in which they live was to withdraw, flight, to become an insular, parochial community. 
to only live with those who thought and did the way they thought and did. And did. The second uh, us-them strategy uh, was embodied by the zealots, fight. Their approach was to take up arms against those who were different. We find remnants of the zealots at the uh, archaeological tell at Masada. There, as you know the story, 960 uh, Jewish men, women, and children suicided rather than give up their lives to the Romans against whom they were rebelling. This was a violent community. Their approach to those who are different was to fight the zealots. And then the third approach in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. I call this fuss. The, uh, they enforced external conformity on people who were different from them uh, by, by uh, teaching a, a very rigorous set of rules or a code of conduct. The remnants of the Pharisees exist today in the thousands of multiplying rules. They were a legalistic community. Fuss. But Jesus had a very different idea. That's not how the kingdom of heaven comes. He offers us a different us-them strategy, and it's in this uh, story. It's a story of, of a man who goes out and sows seed, good seed, all over his field. He goes to bed, and when he wakes up, finds that an enemy has sown weeds. And we learn here that there is a, a, a congruence with kingdom reality. The sower is the son of man. He's Jesus himself who sows the seed. And the enemy is the devil or the personified power of evil in the world. And the wheat are the children of the kingdom. Now, inside, as all the disciples hear this, they go, that's us, the children of the kingdom. Jesus goes on, the weeds are the children of the evil one. And they go, that's them. And if the Essenes are in the room, they would say, get away from them. If the Zealots are in the room, they'd say, go get them. If the Pharisees are in the room, they'd say, get them the rules and quick. But Jesus, in verse 30, says, let them both grow up together. Verse 30. What? Let them both grow up together. What? Does this not seem irresponsible? Does this not seem socially regressive? But what Jesus knows that you and I have trouble getting our heads around is that to destroy good in the world, all the enemy needs to do is withdraw and let good people do the work for him. I'm going to say this again because Robert Capon points out this fascinating insight. This is either craziness or the deep wisdom of the kingdom. The key to the verse is in verse 25, when the enemy just goes away. That's all the enemy needs to do. Just go away and let good people doing good work do his work, do his devastating work. To destroy good in the world, all the enemy needs to do is to pull back and let good people, quote unquote, do the work for him. The urge to purge destroys good and actually does evil. Were these slaves to go out into this field and do what's almost irresistible and is certainly well-intentioned and try to separate the wheat from the weeds, these slaves would be uprooting the wheat before its time. When you and I do this, we're not accurate, we're not able, 
and we're doing something that's not timely. You'll pull up the wheat, Jesus says. Worse yet, Robert Capon writes, since good and evil in this world commonly inhabit not only the same field, but even the same individual human beings, since that is there are no unqualified good guys any more than there are any unqualified bad guys, the only result of a truly dedicated campaign to get rid of evil will be the abolition of literally everybody. Oh my gosh, I got so convicted writing this sermon, I offended even myself. <laughs> That's hard to do. Um, about a year ago, Madeleine Albright was in town for Seattle Pacific University, and she said that the greatest problem in the world today is our propensity to define ourselves by our differences. And I think that's really true. We say, we're this and they're that. We're good and they're bad. Us, them. This dynamic is defining our global conversation, our political conversation, all the ways in which we talk about race, our religious tensions. We define ourselves by our color, the way we talk, the way we vote, the cars we drive, the schools we attend, the charities we support, the music we listen to, and the clothes we wear. I have a friend who's a professor, and he taught a multi-week class for a group of church people. And... Uh, on the last day of class, uh, last week of class, he decided to surprise him because he's, he's also a motorcycle uh, rider and he's got all the gear. And he came to class and he sat in the first row, but he was dressed this time without the tie. He was dressed in his leather chaps and his fringe and his studs. And the whole class had to walk by him to get into the rows of seats. Not a single person recognized him. They sat there at the beginning of class and said, where's Walt? When's class going to start? They couldn't even see him. He looked so much like a them, he couldn't possibly be one of us. But he was sitting right in front of them. Jesus is saying, we cannot run around saying, you're weeds and I'm wheat. Not in the church, not in the world. It's not just that we should not. His story tells us we cannot. We cannot. And if we do, we will do great harm. See, the notable thing in the story is the indistinguishability of wheat and the weeds before the harvest time. Scholars tell us that this weed is called bearded darnel. And some of you know bearded darnel, and it looks exactly like wheat during the growing process. Green, fresh stalk growing up. And it's not until the heads of grain appear on the wheat that you could tell something's not a weed And if in the field, therefore, you cannot see any distinction between the wheat and the weeds, in other words, you cannot see an us or a them, the implication is that we can only act uniformly towards all of those. If we can't see a difference, how could we act differently towards one or the other? And in this story, brilliantly, Jesus pulls together three kingdom realities that the kingdom is universal, that the kingdom is voluntary, and that the kingdom is gracious. Let me just walk through those very briefly. That the kingdom is universal is seen in the fact that Jesus says the field is the world. He sows seed everywhere on his plot, and Jesus says that plot is the world. Jesus has no aspirations of being a parochial king. His kingdom extends to all, so there's no room for flight. His kingdom is voluntary. 
notices Jesus' toleration of good and bad. Both seed are, are in the field. There is space for dissent. There's space for difference. And the difference is real. But there's no fighting. There's no forcing. It's voluntary. We have an opportunity, a responsibility, the gift of responding individually to the grace of Jesus Christ. He doesn't force himself on us. And then thirdly, the field is gracious. And you kind of get a sense of this, just the way Jesus tells the story. But if you were listening in Greek to the way Matthew would tell this story, you'd be more aware of how gracious this is. In verse 30, by the way, it's your own Bible, go ahead and circle the word let. Because that word in verse 30, let, is the common word for forgive. It can mean both things. But the hearer would get the pun that Jesus is making when he says, let both of them grow together. How do we do that? We forgive. This is the same word that is in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses. This is the same word that Jesus speaks from the cross. When he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's gracious kingdom. It's a gracious kingdom. That's its character. You and I cannot run around with an us-them project. This is not our job, Jesus is saying. This is not our job. You forgive, you leave them for me, we'll get it done at the end of the age. Just trust me with that. So then what are we to do? What are we to do? How do we relate to people who seem so very different? How do we embrace a world that doesn't embrace Jesus? Well, it's not fight, flight, it's not fight, and it's not fuss. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus teaches here that it's about family. Family. Notice the language Jesus uses for these seeds and little sprouts. He calls them children, or literally in the Greek, sons of the kingdom. That's family language. You see that verse 38? The wheat are children or sons of the kingdom. Family language. So if we would relate to us in our group as though we were family, and you got to follow me here. This is where I'm going to lose you. And if we can't really tell the difference between us and them, how should we relate to them as family? We relate to us as family, and we can't tell the difference between us and them. We just have to relate to all people as though they were family, as though we were brothers and sisters in the messiness of life, growing up together in the great field of our Savior toward a single Father in heaven. And notice verse 43. Verse 43, the very end of the thing, says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Oh, no, no, he doesn't say that, does he? Are you looking? He says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Their father. He says, I'm talking about them too. The people you call them. Let anyone with ears listen. Now, I'm an English major, as I've told you, so I'm a little uncomfortable with turning family into a verb. It's such a rich noun. So it can't be the act, that can't be the imperative or the takeaway for this morning. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to say we should neighbor like family, okay? Neighbor like family. I'm going to tell you what this looks like. 
I have breakfast regularly at a diner uh, here in town. And over the years that I've been there, I've been getting to know one of the servers. I'm going to call her Hannah. I'm trying to build a relationship with Hannah. Why? Because I want Hannah to know Jesus the way I know Jesus. How have I done that? Well, I haven't done it by uh, giving her an, an ethical scorecard. And I haven't done it by running through a checklist of her doctrines. I've done it by treating her like a sister, treating her like family. Just a couple weeks ago, I was with a group of friends, and we were gathered around a circular table at this place, and we were doing what we oftentimes do. We were just saying grace, and we were asking God to bless the food and bless our days. And at the end, I said amen, and I lifted up my head, and I was so surprised to see standing at the head of that table was Hannah with her eyes closed and her head bowed. And she said, amen. And we all looked a little bit surprised and laughed with embarrassment. And she said, I so much wanted to get in on that. (laughs) You see, what she's beginning to realize is that we have a father in heaven and one of the privileges of being his daughters, his sons, is that we can go to him in prayer and we can lay before him a chaotic day and a chaotic world in prayer and she's stepping into that privilege and if she doesn't know it already sometimes someday soon I pray that she knows that she is a daughter of the same king neighbor like family see the fear here for us is that somehow this leads to the moral relativism that's so deep in our culture that we'll lose our distinction between what's right and what's wrong the fear is that we'll confuse living with others with living like others or that we'll confuse our affirmation of people around us with an approval for what they do. But Jesus does not have that anxiety. He says, just take the risk. At the end of the story, you'll discover I am still king. Good and bad are still good and bad. And everything I sow in this world is good and good will win. Last year when I told the story about the woman caught in adultery, I know I created some anxiety in the congregation. I was trying to make the point that Jesus doesn't condone what she does, but she also, he also doesn't condemn her. He's with her. And one of the emails that I most frequently received from people was this. People said, hey, if you think that, would you go to an, a bar with an alcoholic and sit there while they drank alcohol? And the obvious answer to them seemed to be no, but it was self-evident to me that if I were to do what Jesus did, it would be yes, absolutely yes. I would go to the bar with the alcoholic because I don't want that person to sit there on a stool alone feeling rejected at risk of getting in a car and driving home. I want to be there representing the presence and affection of God for that person, hoping I get an opportunity to build a relationship that gives me a moment to say, do you know how special you are? Do you know that you're a son, a daughter? the king of heaven and all the privileges that come with that do you have any idea because i think it could change a life i just learned recently apparently there was a moment when uh, jerry falwell and larry flint shared a private jet together they were actually sitting side by side and they had just done a debate together and they were flying home and uh Falwell's son was watching this and how chummy these two men were. It just bothered him. It turned his stomach. I mean, if, if you don't know, you know, Jerry Falwell, founder of Liberty University, and Larry Flint, for those of you who are younger, you know, famous pornographer, how could they sit together? And after the flight, he asked, Jonathan uh, asked his dad about this, and, and uh, Jerry Falwell said, Jonathan, there's going to be a day when Larry is hurting and lonely, and he'll be looking for help and guidance. He's going to pick up the phone and call someone who can help him, and I want to earn the right to be that phone call. 
So on that point, Jerry Falwell got it right. Neighbor like family. Karl Barth said, we've got to be careful when we invite the world to the kingdom of Jesus. Who are we and who are they? He writes, if the world thinks here are the people who think they have and know it, it reacts bitterly. As Christians, we can only say to the others, those people in the cinemas and sports stadium, you are our brothers and sisters. Come and take the great step of following Christ with us. If we do not want to be foremost among sinners, we cannot say anything to other sinners. Neighbor-like family. What will that look like for you this week? If you're in high school, maybe it looks like sitting at the wrong table with them. If you're in business, maybe it's going on a trip with the guys or the ladies to Las Vegas on that dreaded trip. Maybe it's going with your neighbor to a mosque and sitting with them there. Maybe it's parenting your grandchild who doesn't really have any parents. Maybe it's opening up your small group to somebody who would never have guessed that they have a home in a group of people who love Jesus. I think this story that Jesus tells is particularly memorable for Matthew. He's the only one, he's the only one who remembers this story. Matthew, Levi. Because Matthew had been one of them. That's who he was. Tax collector, fleecing his people to support a Roman occupation. But one day Jesus came to him and all the crowds expecting him to pull Matthew like a weed so quick. And yet Jesus said, Matthew, you, come and follow me. Matthew threw the great party and invited all the tax collectors, all the notable sinners, the New Living Translation tells us. In fact, Mark notes that there were many such people among the followers of Jesus. And I think Matthew wants to remind us here that it's not about us. It's not about them. It's about him. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a challenging word this is, but what a wonderful invitation to divest ourselves of this anxiety, just dive into your wonderful and rich world, world, trusting that truly you are at work, not only in the church, but throughout the whole world. As we go from this place, we go powered by your Holy Spirit, eager to encounter that work and to acknowledge it and to grow up together into the bright brilliance of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.